finding freedom in truth, pursuing truth in scripture. This is the Mormon Hope Podcast with Brandon Vaughn and Dave Malinak. Welcome into the Mormon Hope Podcast. I am Brandon Vaughn along with Dave Malinak. We're two Baptist pastors who live and pastor in the heart of Mormon country, Utah. And we like to take this podcast and use it as a platform to have many of the same conversations that we've had one-on-one with our LDS friends and neighbors, and at times compare and contrast the Christian faith with that of their own. And uh, I honestly... I can't even remember what episode we're on. I know it's, <laughs> it's been quite a while. We've, been, since, a while. We've yeah. been away for a little while. Yeah, and even the last episode I did by my lonesome, but it was a great interview. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's why Susanna. it was a great interview <laughs> by herself. <laughs> but uh, we are back and uh, going to have to knock the rust it's off, nice I It's nice to be back, by the way. Yeah, it is. I haven't talked this much in a while, uh, you know, just sitting around listening to things, but... Um, but it is good to be back uh, with everybody and do this uh, one more time, and uh, hopefully we'll get more of a routine going here uh, in the days ahead. We're going to be looking at the topic of sin today, the doctrine of sin, harmatiology, and uh, really, honestly, and you and I have talked about this in our own private conversations, uh, we believe this is one of the major missing links oh, sure. in the church in America. I'm talking about it's, the Christian church. Yeah, it's everywhere. Because people don't have a high view of God. They have a really—their view of sin is actually skewed by the fact that they only look at themselves. And most people, when you talk to them, it's only, you know, well, I'm I'm not as bad as other people. I'm not as bad as that guy. And I want to read a quote from J.C. Ryle, one of the best I've ever read on the subject. And he really just throws it out there. And this really shows why this is such an important topic. But J.C. Ryle said, There are very few errors and false doctrines of which the beginning may not be traced up to unsound views about the corruption of human nature. Wrong views of the disease will always bring with them wrong views of the remedy. Wrong, uh, wrong views of the corruption of human nature will always carry with them wrong views of the grand antidote and cure of that corruption. Mm. And the reason that this subject is so important is because whatever you think about mankind, whatever you think about people and human nature will determine what you think they need. If man is basically good, as the Joel Osteens of the world say, then all man needs really is is a cheerleader, is a a therapist or a life coach. Yep. Uh, in fact, I mean this, and this theology is running rampant, uh, even among you know so-called uh, Christian preachers and pastors. I know, um, uh, you know, famous uh, megachurch pastor Stephen Furtick. Even just yesterday, came out with this tweet that went viral. Uh, Stephen Furtick said, "Following Jesus doesn't change you into something else." It reveals who you've been all along. Mm-hmm. What would it be like to see the you that God sees? <laughs> well, according to Scripture, it would be dead and trespassing. Yeah, that's right, and and headed for destruction. Um, Jesus said, uh, "He that believeth on me is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already." The wrath of God abideth on. That's him. right. So uh, every man in a natural state is alienated from God. This is what the Bible teaches. You know, I have Romans chapter 8 open right here, and uh, Romans chapter 8 in verse 5, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now some, no doubt, will say, well, I'm spiritually minded. I'm concerned about the things of God. We can talk about that in a minute when we look at Psalm 14 and and, uh, Psalm 53, but... The Bible says, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So the Bible goes to that length to say this is the state of the natural mind. And if you think, as I said, if you think that man is basically good, 
All I need is God for is to be a therapist, just mm. power steering, just right, right. push you along. But if you believe what the Bible believes, that man is dead in trespasses and sins, he cannot please God, uh, all of his desires and thoughts of his intents of his heart are wicked, mm-hmm. then that's when we need a Savior right. to uh, cause us to be born again, to regenerate us, to save us from ourselves. Right. And so, yes, the the higher your view of man, the lower your view of God yeah. and vice versa. So this is super important. Is is man basically good at heart or is yeah. he inherently evil? Yeah. So, you know, back to what you just said a second ago, the higher your view of God. It's not like we're trying to, you know, elevate God above what he is, which would be impossible, number one. Yeah. But really, it's not trying to see who has the highest view of God. This is not a competition. But rather, the the point is to see God as he is. God is a holy God. When Ferociously we view, holy. When we view the holiness of God, then it's impossible for us to look at ourselves as anything that is good. In, in, he is the standard. So in light of his holiness— we evaluate ourselves and understand ourselves. So part of the reason, and even uh, apply this to broader Christianity as a whole, when you go into churches, a lot of the contemporary churches where it's a um, come as you are, leave as you are, you know, and, and Stephen Furtick, his his little thing, his little twit, tweet yesterday um, is indicative of this whole thing that we just have this view of ourselves as so high um, and so fine, and church is just here to kind of ease your troubled mind. And and so people are coming into church to quote-unquote worship God, but they're not, they're not worshiping the God of the Bible at all. There's, in, in fact, a great coddling of the human flesh, of, of the mind and, and the man himself, a massaging of the ego that goes on. It really is therapy sessions um, with, with, you know, cool lights and music and fog machines. But that doesn't get to the root of the, the issue here. And so as a result, broader Christianity itself sees sin as, you know, well, no one's perfect and people make mistakes, but they don't see sin as the the root cause of the rift between us and God that has caused us to be alienated. That's strong language Paul uses. They're yes. alienated and enemies in our minds by wicked works, the yes. Bible says. And you talked about the root of the problem. I mean, I, I don't think you can talk about this subject without going back to the beginning. Uh, right. The sin of Adam. Right. That's right. And what exactly did that do to the human race? Right. And, I mean, it, it literally caused us to be, as you said, alienated from the presence of God. God is so holy that one sin, one act of disobedience cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, out of his presence, and the same is true with all of his descendants. You know, we talk about uh, the doctrine of original sin, and I think a lot of people have taken that to mean uh, the actual sin that Adam committed, but it really has more to do with the effects right. of that sin right. that fall upon us. Yeah, the sin itself obviously was a serious problem, but you can see the effects immediately, instantly. So whereas God fellowshiped with Adam regularly, and they looked forward to this, Adam, after he sinned, immediately began to hide from God. Yes, the presence of God, absolutely. And it's been that way ever since. Man's mm-hmm. been fleeing from God's presence ever since. We've been suppressing the truth of God. Right. And, uh, you know, if you think about people in the Bible that, that came into the presence of God in any real meaningful way, they all fell down like dead oh, yeah. men. I mean, yeah. Moses, he, uh, God told Moses, no man can see my face and live. Right. Uh, we see Isaiah, who was a saved man. He'd been, already been preaching mm-hmm. throughout the whole book. A prophet. Yes. In Isaiah 6, he sees the Lord uh, mm-hmm. on his throne, his train filled the temple. And, I mean, he said, woe is me, for right. I'm a man of unclean lips. And even the seraphim, these angelic creatures in the holiness of God, it almost looks like they're trembling and right. covering themselves in his presence. Yeah. And and so he's ferociously holy. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so when we talk about, and I, I like to use this when I'm, I'm witnessing to somebody, uh, I'll talk to them and I'll ask them if they think they're a good person. 
And most of the time, people say yes. But mm-hmm. then you, this is the question that the listener has to ask themselves. If you think that you're a good person, you have to ask yourself, by what standard mm-hmm. am I a good person? Mm-hmm. Because if you've made up your own standard, you're always going to do pretty well right. by your own standard. Right. But when we measure ourselves against the holy standard of God, mm-hmm. we fall miserably mm-hmm. short because you don't just have to be good right. in order to meet God's standard and enter into his presence and go to heaven. You have to be 100% perfect because right. he has a zero tolerance policy yeah. when it comes to sin. Well, and it can't just be on the negative side, so nothing in the negative balance there, you know, no debits. Um, but there also has to be a perfect righteousness, yes, now uh, which is present in our Lord Jesus Christ, which is of course present in God. God is holy, God is good, He isn't good because he lives up to a standard or because he's done good things or met uh, a requirement that is held over him that he has to live up to. But God is himself the standard of goodness and righteousness, so in order for us to be considered good. We would have to live up, to, we would have to not just live up to his standard, there would have to be that intrinsic goodness, yes. that innate goodness in ourselves, which can only be found in God himself. So Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden were innocent, yes, they were created in a state of innocency, but that state of innocency was not enough even to prevent them from sinning, from falling into sin, because their righteousness was not a an innate kind of righteousness. It was not um, natural to them. They were created in the image of God, uh, but then God also showed that there are uh, deficiencies in that, uh, in the sense, and I, I say deficiencies, I probably should be careful about how I say that, but um, the image of God... Um, that was created, that they were created in, that they were formed in, um, was uh, a good thing. It was a right thing. They were good. God said that. He declared them as good. And yet, um, there was still something lacking there uh, that was exposed when they faced temptation. Well, God, in his nature, he can't sin. Right. He can't be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. The book of James tells us he can't lie. The book of Titus tells us. Um, He can't even, uh, Habakkuk tells us, that he's so holy that his eyes can't even behold iniquity. And that doesn't mean that he literally can't see it. It just means he can't look upon it in a tolerable way. And Adam and Eve, they obviously could sin. They they did sin. That's right. So how do we explain that? Um, It's not as if God fell short in his creation. He created us exactly the way he wanted us to be. And when God declared his creation of man to be good, what he meant was that it was exactly what he intended that man should be. Yes. But then we see, and, and I think this is the point of the fall, in fact, is to display, to demonstrate mankind his absolute dependence on God and the holiness of God, the goodness of God, that our goodness alone is not sufficient, that we must have the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, and and really in the scriptures, there's three types of imputation. We talk about imputation that literally means to charge to someone else's account. Mm -hmm. You had Adam's sin imputed to us. Mm -hmm. You had our sin imputed to Christ on the cross. Mm -hmm. And when a person repents and trusts Christ, Christ's righteousness is imputed to them. Mm -hmm. And so we see that circle. And, you know, people hear this and they say, well, how is that fair? Mm-hmm. How is it because of Adam's sin yeah. that we... Well, and the LDS Church denies the, the whole notion of original sin, that anything that Adam did in any way applied to us. And here's what, here's what I think we miss, a lot of people miss. You know, you ask the question, is it fair? And this is an illustration that I like to use. I've used it in my church. I've used it in my writing. But let's just pretend, let's, let's make a hypothetical situation here. Let's just pretend that scientists could figure out a way to send an airplane back to the time of the ancient Egyptians. And the Egyptians find this airplane. And, you know, they're smart. They figure out after a while, they figure out how to 
you know, cut it on. They figure out how to take off and fly up in the air. And they're on their initial flight and they're hovering above the clouds and they look down and the fluffy clouds just look so inviting that one of them decides to jump out of the plane and to land softly on these clouds. Well, we know what happens. He, mm-hmm. he falls to the clouds to his death. And when they find the, this gruesome discovery of what's left of his body, nobody's ever tempted to do that again because they know that the outcome would be the same every time. Right. There are certain controlled experiments where you know it's going to be the same outcome Every single time. Mm-hmm. And that is the case with the Garden of Eden. It was a perfect situation. Mm-hmm. No sin, no death, no sickness, uh, no financial problems. Mm-hmm. It was a, a utopia. And the one thing that man couldn't do or wasn't allowed to do is what he did. And yeah. so the point is we would have done the same thing. Right. And if you look at every situation in the Bible like that, think about the flood. Right. I've asked our church before, if you lived during the time of the flood, would you have drowned or would you have been <laughs> saved? Well, the answer is yes, because mm-hmm. God looked down and all he saw was wickedness. Mm-hmm. And apart from his grace, no one his family would have perished. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so we or Sodom and Gomorrah, would you have fled the city? Mm-hmm. Well, how can we possibly say we would have done, or even at Calvary, right. would we have been one of the ones that shouted and crucify him, or would we just ignored him and, and let him die? I mean, mm-hmm. how could we possibly say, oh, I would have done better, I right. would have been better? Even his own disciples fled and yes. abandoned him, forsook him. Peter uh, denied him. And uh, so, yeah, the, the, so for the LDS Church, you know, the denial of original sin um is a strange thing because there's not really if apart from original sin apart from the the fact that the human race itself fell in adam yes how do you explain the fact that every person i mean there's what six billion seven billion people alive at this exact moment yeah all of whom have sinned in the same way as adam did and Worse. if you go back in the history of mankind, there has never been, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, never been one person who did not also sin. Which is, to me, that is the greatest proof of right. original sin. I mean, surely right. somebody would have beat the system by now. Right. And yet the cemeteries are full and no one escapes death. Nobody. Right. right. So the debate really is not over the existence of original sin. I think it's a really a moot point because we're all sinners. We're all under condemnation because of our sin. Um, And so we have to, I think when we're talking about sin, um, we have to consider not just the guilt of sin, which we are all aware of innately aware of people are desperately trying to escape the guilt of their sin, and they do it through a variety of ways, by whether it's denying God, pursuing drugs, um, or alcohol, uh, self-medicating their guilt and shame, yeah. um, or trying to do a lot of good things and fill their life with good deeds, or religious pursuit, or something like that. But there are all kinds of ways that we try to escape that guilt. But I think also we have to consider what what you pointed out at the beginning, not just the fact of sin, but the effects of sin yes. on us and how far-reaching those effects are uh, when it comes to our relationship to God. Yeah. So the question is, do sinful men pursue God and desire a restored relationship to him? The answer is absolutely not. Some of our listeners might be saying, well, I do, I do, I did, I I do, I want. And I understand, in fact, there are people that I think are following the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, who would say that I did, I wanted that, and that's why I came to Christ. But the Bible would say something different than that. Yes. And really, when we talk about... Um this issue of depravity or total depravity. Um, I think there's a lot of confusion because I know some well-meaning Christian people, you know, even um, in the evangelical circles that have kind of adopted this almost pagan view of free will. Mm -hmm. And now when we talk about free will, if you're talking about that, that people do what they want to do, Mm -hmm. I'm in total agreement with that. We do what we want to do. The question becomes, why do we want to do 
the things that we want to do. And when it comes to desiring God, Mm -hmm. out of our own depravity, our own sinfulness, we would never of our own volition desire God. It's not within us. It goes completely against this sinful nature. And I absolutely love the way Jonathan Edwards put it. I a few years ago, I read his book, The Freedom of the Will. Mm-hmm. And for all of his deep, you know, New England language of 300 years ago. Dialectic. Too. Yeah. He made, dialectic. He, he made the point that that people always act upon their greatest desire at any given moment. We can't mm-hmm. possibly do otherwise. And, and just a brief example, uh, let's just say that, you know, somebody went shopping at Walmart. Why anybody would want to do that, I don't know. But... Let's say that they're going to their car. They're walking to their car at the end of the parking lot. It's dark. And as they're getting in the car, somebody sticks a gun in their side and says, give me all your money. Well, obviously, you don't want to give up your hard-earned money. Mm-hmm. But even more than that, you want to live. Mm-hmm. So there's these conflicting desires, but you act upon your greatest desire in that moment, which mm-hmm. is giving your money and live. And, mm-hmm. and so the question becomes, why would we – desire God above everything else, above the, the sin that our nature craves. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, we do what we want to do, but we want to sin because we're a slave to our sinful nature. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, he that committed sin is the servant or the, the doulos, the slave of sin. Yeah. And so we're a slave to our sinful nature. Yeah. Um, I, I, five different thoughts went through my head with <laughs> all of that. Um but I think a good starting point for us is what God himself says about man. Yes. And Psalm 14, Psalm 53, both repeat the same thing, that God looked down upon the children of men to see if there were any that understood, any that did seek God. And his verdict was no. No. Absolutely not. In fact, he's... Like he runs it through like an encyclopedia. Yeah. Um, with that, I'm just reading from Psalm 14. Um, they are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. The 53rd Psalm, and I'm just turning over there, repeats almost verbatim what is said in Psalm um, 14. No, I'm not trying to crinkle my. Um, Bible pages right there in the <laughs> microphone. Sounds spiritual when you do it that. It does. It does. Um, but again, Psalm 53, verse 2, God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. Every one of them has gone back. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And then the apostle Paul takes that in Romans chapter 3. Yeah. And he expands it in order to show the universal guilt and universal alienation of mankind. Um, Romans 3. Or do you have that? I've got it right here. Oh, well, I'll stop turning then. Uh, well, I guess you could start in uh, verse 10 of Romans chapter 3. It says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. And here's, to me, this is the key. He said, there is none that seeketh after God. What we just talked about, man in his natural state would never desire God. He goes on to uh, say they've all gone out of the way. They're all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. I mean, you could keep going. It's Mm -hmm. just a tirade. And then you get to uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the perfect standard that God requires. So every man, because of his sin, is alienated from God. And this is what we have to understand, that Sin taints everything. It ruins everything. Yes. You know, the, the Romans six twenty three. the wages of sin is death. Uh, the Bible says the soul that sinneth, it shall die. That um, the principle, biblical principle that's at play here is that whatever sin touches, it kills. Yes. So when people sin willfully, that means that sin is also destroying the will so that we, and that's where the Bible says, um, that you cannot do the things that you would uh, there. So so th- even the will itself, the mind, the things that we value, the things that we treasure, um, and so on, all of that is um, not just tainted by sin, it is ruined by sin. Yes. Sin destroys us as people. It taints and and 
distracts us from the things we ought to desire, the things that we ought to want, the things that we ought to pursue. We actually run away from, we reject those things, and we reject God. And that's why there is this necessity for a Redeemer, one who comes in, not just um, making an atonement for mankind in general that allows man, as as the LDS Church teaches, um, the idea of the atonement as being um, something that's provided universally for people so that everyone is in the resurrection and all that's left for us is how much do you want you know how much heaven do you want um, so that you can pursue that uh, it, this is not the idea of the redeemer when the bible says that you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins so there's that that the need to be made alive by the lord jesus christ alive unto god dead unto sin Um, but then also um, the idea of uh, one to be reconciled to god uh, through jesus christ that god was in christ reconciling the world unto himself Um, so we have this desperate need for a redeemer, for a savior, for the Holy Spirit of God uh, to convict us and compel us to believe um, the word of God, to instruct us in the way of faith, uh, in the way of grace, so that we will receive the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our desperate need as men, and this desperate need is universal. Every yes, man has across it. Across the board. So... I'm the one ranting right now. <laughs> I noticed that, uh, but I I wanted to get into uh, what the LDS Church teaches on sin, and kind of dig into that here. And then I thought we could address a couple things on that because, um, and maybe we've not been complete enough with what we said. But I think this is a good place. What do you think? I think people are getting the idea. Okay. All right, they got the idea. So I um, went into gospel topics on LDS.org or Latter-day Saint. I guess it's churchofjesuschrist.org now. It's been a number of names um, through the years, so I apologize for getting confused on that. Um, But uh, I'm reading from gospel topics on sin, and uh, just quoting here, sin results in the withdrawal of the Holy Ghost is what is said there. Um, But it's sin is treated, to commit sin is to willfully disobey God's commandments or to fail to act righteously despite a knowledge of the truth. Okay. So then the effect, according to LDS.org, or according to these gospel topics, is that sin results in the withdrawal of the Holy Ghost. So it's more a piecemeal thing where... Uh, we all have, you know, because we're all in the resurrection, we're all, we all, the atonement applies to everybody. And so when you sin, it's more that it only affects you and kind of a temporary thing. He withdraws, um, then you repent, he forgives, and he comes back um, for you. So um, there is that. Through the atonement of Jesus Christ, each person can repent and be forgiven of these sins. So that's the idea of sin. Now, um, just looking at the footnotes, I noticed that one of the messages from church leaders that is attached to the article on sin, which is a fairly short article, by the way, it's three paragraphs long. Um, But one of the articles, messages from church leaders, attaches to God will forgive, uh, a message by President Spencer W. Kimball. And Kimball wrote the book, The Miracle of Forgiveness, which is an interesting book. I'm going to get into that because his view of repentance um, is an important one for our LDS listeners to consider here. Um, So then I just drilled in and kind of trailed around and followed other articles attached to the article on sin. So then we have a page on forgiveness, page and a half on forgiveness, and just highlighting a couple of things on that. Um, Because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, we can receive forgiveness for our sins through sincere and complete repentance. So again, there's the idea of repentance that is innate in this LDS view of 
um, sin. And then justice. Justice is important as well. Um, justice, they, I, I would, I think, quibble with one point that they make on the subject of justice. I'm just reading from the top on justice in scriptural terms. Justice is the unchanging law that brings consequences for actions. Because of the law of justice, we receive blessings when we obey God's commandments. The law of justice also demands that a penalty be paid for every sin we commit. Now, um, I would quibble with that because um, justice doesn't ever uh, bless us for doing good. Justice deals with our sin. Um, Yeah. When we have done what we ought to do, we've merely done our duty. We haven't done something that merits a reward for us at all. And our good deeds cannot overcome our bad deeds or even give us a, a pass. No, good deeds could never erase broken laws. That's right. That's right. And so justice requires, in fact, a just judge looks at the law that was broken and exacts a penalty for that broken law. The the law of the Old Testament was uh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. So it's an exacting kind of thing. And there's no um, backing off of it <clears throat> or um, pass that can be given because, you know, you, um, you did these other good things over here. So that doesn't give you merit. And there's not a scale, a grand scale in heaven where good deeds are placed on one side and measured against bad deeds. No. On that. So... Continuing, though, with the view of justice, when the Savior carried out the atonement, he took our sins upon himself. He was able to answer the ends of the law, Second Nephi 2.7, because he subjected himself to the penalty that the law required for our sins. In doing so, he satisfied the demands of justice and extended mercy to everyone who repents and follows him. So uh, a lot in that, we would find... At least the language that's used sounds a lot like biblical Christianity. Yeah. But there is still that nagging thing of repentance. Now, I'm not denying that repentance um, plays a role. I think the old confessions of faith uh, and the old um, pastors would have said something along these lines, uh, that God will not, um, God does not save any man because he repents. Neither will any man be saved who refuses to repent. Yeah. So our repentance does not merit either the forgiveness of God or the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Uh, But a man who will not repent will not receive grace from God. So our repentance is more part of the necessary step, the necessary process of faith in Jesus Christ, that when we believe on him, we are leaving behind uh, a life of sin and a life of self-will, really a life of autonomy. Now, Jesus said, he that saveth his life will lose it. He that seeketh to save his life will lose it. Uh, He that loseth his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. Yes. And when it comes to repentance, I mean, there's really even some division uh, within Christian churches on this. And even mm-hmm. even some of the, I guess it's the new IFB or some of these, <laughs> you know, new new style of Baptist, they uh, they really condemn repentance. Yeah, like as a, Stephen Anderson. Yeah, Stephen in Anderson, that, that crowd, they, they condemn it as a work. Repentance yeah. is a work. And then they ask questions like, well, can you possibly repent of all your sin it's impossible and the thing is you know repentance is also the gift of god right you know he grants us repentance i I think about second timothy uh chapter 2 and verse 25 in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves if god peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will and so uh yeah, it, you know, God commands it, but he also performs it. Mm-hmm. And, right. and, you know, repentance, it's, it's, it's more than just, oh, I'm going to repent of all these sins. Repentance is a change of mind mm-hmm. that leads to a change of life, whereas I used to love these things, now I hate them. Mm-hmm. And I like how Spurgeon put it. 
He said, yeah, I may stumble and fall, but I'm consistently walking uphill. Mm-hmm. And that's a great way to put it. I'm not going the same way right. that I used to go. Yeah. And the big thing is that you're not going your own way. Yes, See, absolutely. And this is where, you know, false religion really is not found in a set of doctrines and set of um, principles or whatever um, so much as it is just a pursuit of my own way. Yes. And people will pursue false religions because those false religions appeal to them as a person. Yes. It's a, well, it's a heart change. It's yeah. a heart. Religion will only change you skin deep. It's a heart change. Mm-hmm. To be born again, to be born from above mm-hmm. is to become a new creature. And uh, I heard someone say, and this is perhaps one of my favorite simple definitions of repentance but someone once said that repentance is when you take sides with god against yourself Mm -hmm. yeah yeah where you're recognizing that this sin is against god and you're agreeing to that and you're agreeing with god to in fact abandon that forsake it and pursue instead the things that god calls us to pursue repentance and faith are really two inseparable sides of a coin because you're making one move, but you're doing two things. It's like Paul said uh, to the church at Thessalonica. He he commended them because they had turned from idols mm-hmm. to serve the true and living God. Yeah. So they turn away from their idols and repentance. At the same time, they're turning toward the true God in faith. Yeah. So repentance then is turning from your false religion, from your false will, your false way, from the false things that you do, turning from those things to the truth, which is the truth is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And and being more concerned, uh, not for the consequence of your sin. You know, there is a false repentance, a a worldly repentance that, that is sorrowful for the consequence of sin. True repentance is sorrowful over the fact that we have sinned against God. Yeah. Yeah. That's the difference. Yes. I've said uh, many times to our church that um, when you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, it doesn't mean that you stop sinning. What it means, though, is that you start caring about it. Yes. Because prior to being born again, you lived your life for self. When you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you live your life in regards for God you you live your life to God. Yes. And so before prior to the new birth, um we live our life without regard for God, without thought of God. I had a man one time after he received Christ as savior, he he came to me and he said, "Pastor, it's driving me crazy." He said, "Everything I do, I think should I be doing this? Is this what God would have me to do? He said, before, I just did what I did. I didn't worry about it. I didn't think about it. But then after I received Christ, now I'm thinking, what does the Bible say about this? And Welcome that's to sanctification. Of, that's right. That's a mark of salvation. Yes. So trailing a little further into gospel topics from the churchofjesuschrist.org website, uh, there's also an article on mercy. And mercy is an important factor in this thing of sin yes. as well. Mercy, they, according to the website, mercy is the compassionate treatment of a person greater than what is deserved, and it is made possible through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, again, uh, apart from my objection to the idea of universal atonement, I'm, I, I don't differ with that statement taken at face value, okay? God's compassion may seem to conflict with the law of justice, which requires that no unclean thing be permitted to dwell with him. But the atonement of Jesus Christ made it possible for God to be a perfect, just God and a merciful God also. Again, this is this is a true expression. Very Christian sounding language. It is. The Savior satisfied the demands of justice when he stood in our place and suffered the penalty for our sins. I, I've said that same thing multiple times from my pulp, pulpit, that Jesus Christ satisfied the just demands of God for our sin. Um, because of this selfless act, the Father can mercifully withhold punishment from us and welcome us into his presence to receive the Lord's forgiveness. We must sincerely repent of our sins. So repentance is a repeated 
thing, and we've talked about the biblical view of repentance. Now we need to get to what the LDS Church teaches about repentance, because that is a really big deal. And and what we said at the beginning about the total devastating effects of sin on our humanity, on us as people, on even on our desire for God and our ability to seek after him apart from his divine intervention in our lives um, is going to play a factor in what is said here about repentance. So, um, again, this article from Gospel Topics, churchofjesuschrist.org, on repentance. Repentance is one of the first principles of the gospel and is essential to our temporal and eternal happiness. It is much more than just acknowledging wrongdoings. It is, here you go, a change of mind and heart that gives us a fresh view about God, about ourselves, and about the world. No disagreement so far, right? It includes turning away from sin and turning to God for forgiveness. It is motivated by love for God and the sincere desire to obey his commandments. Okay, Uh, you know, I'm sure we could dig into that a little bit more, but we'll just keep going here. Um, That we, as we repent and rely on his saving grace, we will be cleansed from sin. Again, I'm, I'm quoting, I'm just hopscotching a little bit through here. Because I want to get to the elements of repentance. This is a key point here. Elements of repentance. According to the LDS Church, repentance includes the following elements. Okay? Now, you stop me when I get to the one that you disagree with. All okay? Right. That we find unscriptural. Faith in our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. Sorrow for sin. Um. And in fact, goes into godly sorrow. Second Corinthians seven ten is quoted here um, that godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. Godly sorrow does not come because of the natural consequences of sin or because of a fear of punishment. Rather, it comes from the knowledge that we have through our actions displeased our heavenly Father and our Savior. Okay, still on point. Okay, next confession. All right. Um, he that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Proverbs twenty eight thirteen. All right. I'm going to skip something and come back. Okay. The next point is abandonment of sin. Okay. And this is where the teaching of Spencer Kimball comes to bear. All right. Now, I've had... Um, LDS friends tell me, well, we don't really believe, I mean, Spencer Kimball, you know, you'd be really depressed if you read his miracle of forgiveness. It is really hard. And that's not really what the LDS church teaches anymore. Okay, well, I guess so, it had been true for a time if he was. Well, not only that, but it's right here. Yeah. It's on their website Uh-oh. right now. So that means, as far as I know, if it's on the website right now, that means that the current president is in agreement with us. Wow. Abandonment of sin. Okay, let me explain the meaning of this. Although confession is an essential element of repentance, it is not enough. The Lord has said, By this ye may know if a man repenteth of his sins, behold, he will confess them and forsake them. We must maintain an unyielding, permanent resolve that we will never repeat the transgression. When we keep this commitment, we will never experience the pain of that sin again. We must flee immediately from any compromising situation. If a certain situation causes us to sin or may cause us to sin, we must leave. We cannot linger in temptation and expect to overcome sin. Okay? So, how far do they take this? Well, Spencer Kimball taught that their repentance required a permanent abandoning of all sin. Wow. Okay, and that if, in fact, and Kimball said this on uh, a good on good grounds, at least according to the LDS Church, because for evidence of this, for proof of this, he quoted 
the Book of Mormon, which says that if you commit the sin again after repenting, all your former sins come back on you again. Wow. So a permanent abandoning of all sin, that's repentance. And I want to clarify, too, because a lot of people outside of Baptist circles hear us say these things, and depending on what they've been taught, they automatically think, oh, man, they think that... uh, you know, once you get your ticket punch, you can do what you want to. Jesus paid for our sin. Let's get uh-huh. our money's worth. And that's not at all what we're saying. No, no, and no, if, no. And here's the problem with somebody like Kimball. It's not that they have, uh, you know, too strict a view on sin. The problem is they have too low a view of God. Right. Because they think that they could actually obtain that kind of perfection. Understand that when the Bible talks about sin, I mean, you're talking about sins of commission, things that you're not supposed to do. You're talking about sins of omission, good things that you're mm-hmm. supposed to do that you don't. James four seventeen. therefore to them that knoweth to do good, and doeth, doeth it not. not to them that sin. You're talking about even the thought of foolishness is sin. Right. You're right. talking about even the things that we do, the good things that we do without the motivation of faith is sin. The Bible says that the plowing of the wicked is sin. Is sin. Like everything that a... Uh, and a man who's alienated from God, everything he does yes. is tainted by self-interest, self-centeredness. So he he is not doing it for God. Yes. The fact that he is not doing it purely for the glory of God is itself sin. And so when we say that we fail God every day in thought, word, and deed, it doesn't mean that we're going out and painting the town red and... <laughs> You know, we're not relishing in sin. I'm too vanilla to do that anyway. But, you know, one of the one of the greatest things about heaven and getting our glorified body, the Bible says that we will be like him. We shall be like him, talking about Christ. Well, the insinuation is that we're not that way now. That's right. And, and so, that yes. it requires divine intervention for that to even happen. Yes. And so going along with what you said, not only does Kimball display a low view of God, but he also displays a high view yes. of man and man's ability to do this. And I, I've called it the impossible gospel. This quote unquote miracle of forgiveness is no miracle at all. It's it's an impossibility. It, it cannot be done. No man can permanently abandon all his sin. And so as a result of that, then here's here's what we have. And this is what I encounter on the street with our LDS neighbors. Most LDS people are not willing to even consider their own fallenness. They're not willing to consider the depth of their own sin. And I hate to use the word depravity just because the connotation of the word is that like we're all insane, start raving, mad well, and, and serial we'll, killers. When we use the phrase total depravity, we're not saying that people are as bad as they could possibly be, but that the effects of sin have affected the total man. Right. Mind, right. body, soul, will. Yeah. And so the whole being is tainted by the effects of sin. Yeah. So, so there is this... Um, Sin has ruined everything. Yes. Sin kills what it touches, and uh, the more we sin, the more we indulge in sin, uh, the more deadly its effects will be on us, not just on us physically, but on our on our mind, on the spiritual part of ourselves, on our on our will, on our emotions, on all the things that we value, and so on. Um, so, so Kimball is speaking as if, and, and the question that you would want to ask him is, have you done this? Exactly. And of course, a lot of um, LDS people, and, and again, I was talking about two kinds of LDS, um, the, the average, I'd say, rank and file member of the LDS church is simply not willing to consider the depth of his own depravity, not willing to consider how much sin he commits. Yes. So... They're very casual and very light, and typically when I'm having a conversation with a member of the church, they'll say something like, well, no one's perfect. I mean, we all do sin, but th- but but that's always said in almost a dismissive yeah, way. It's kind of a cop-out, yeah. Right. 
on the other hand, you have another kind. It's a very distinct kind of member of the LDS Church, one who takes this thing of repentance seriously. Now, I say those who are not giving careful consideration to their own sinfulness are not taking repentance seriously. Yes. If you are ignoring obvious sin in your life and just glossing over it and looking past it, if you are doing that, and I'm not just talking here um, to a rank and file member of the church, but I'm talking to bishops, I'm talking to elders, I'm talking to missionaries, I'm talking to all of you, okay? I don't care how high up you are in the church. If you are tolerating sin, allowing it, hiding it, concealing it, and and I, I should I should pause here and read this on the point of of confession. Gospel gospel topic says this: serious transgressions such as violations of the law of chastity may jeopardize a person's membership in the church. Therefore, such sins need to be confessed to both the Lord and his priesthood representatives in the church. This is done under the care of a bishop or branch president and possibly a stake or mission president who serve as watchmen and judges in the church. While only the Lord can forgive sins, these priesthood leaders play a critical role in the process of repentance. So, I mean, this is a big deal here. You're a bishop. You're listening to this. You're a, you're a stake president. You are an elder. You're a you're a missionary, whatever you are. All right, are you doing that, or are there things that you've done and you've concealed it and hidden it so that you can maintain your temple status, so that you can maintain your standing in the church, your position in the church? Yes. I mean, really, a lot of them, I mean, the LDS know if they go to the bishop about it, they're going to have to go through a process of restitution. It's going to be a long process. They're going to lose. They have a lot to lose to tell these things. And yet, if you believe what you do about repentance, what else can you do? How can you conceal it? How can you hide it? So if you're taking it... Seriously, if you believe in this kind of repentance, in this uh, requirement that you must totally abandon all your sin, then I would guess that as you're listening right now, what you're feeling is a sense of despair. Exactly. I can't do this. Which is exactly what they need to think. It is. Because we, I know that we've been really gloom and doom and the listeners are probably saying well how can anybody be saved well now you're asking the right question right. because right. nobody can that's right nobody can that's right in I, fact uh, um c.s lewis um described in his book mere christianity described jesus as the perfect penitent yes he he talked about the fact that uh, you know in fact i had a young man come he came to our church one time and then at the end of the service came forward and he was LDS, but um, he was just begging us. Like he was in the depths of despair, bawling his eyes out, crying. And he said, I'm trying to repent. But he said, I'm afraid because I can't remember all the sins that I've committed. And I'm afraid that I'll forget one. And what do I do with that? So this is, this is the thing. And C.S. Lewis was making this point as well. You can't remember all your sin. You can't repent of all of it. And the sins that you remember and that you know very well and that you're trying to repent of, you cannot and will not repent perfectly of those sins. Yes. So that means then that the standard of a total abandonment of all your sin is an impossible standard. It is impossible. And the good news is that's not the standard God requires because the Lord Jesus Christ took our sins to the cross. Yes where he paid the penalty for their, those sins and became, in a sense, the perfect penitent because the Lord Jesus Christ repented for you. Yes. And in doing so, he took your sin. He dealt with the sin the right way. His repentance is total and absolute for one thing because he's not drawn to that sin. He's not, um, he cannot, as God, he cannot be tempted with evil. 
himself. And so he is able then to provide us with a perfect righteousness, which includes that perfect repentance that we depend that we look for and depend on. And really, I've I've told our church several times two of the most liberating words in the universe is the two words I can't. Mm-hmm. And you know, it sounds real good on the surface to tell somebody, "Hey, you can do this. Mm-hmm. You can you can beat this sin. You can repent. You can earn favor with God or do these good things." But the way that actually plays out in reality, it right. just it doesn't happen. It can't happen. Our sinful nature won't allow it to happen. And so people, they are in despair. Mm-hmm. They are frustrated. Mm-hmm. They are carrying a weight that they were uh, never designed to carry. That's right. And you have to get to that place where, God, I can't. I can't save myself. I can't overcome this sinful nature. I can't do these things. I can't check all these boxes. Mm-hmm. But, God, I know that you can and you did. That's right. It's not about what you do. It's about what he did. It's not about who you are. It's about who he is. Mm-hmm. Christ is the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect payment, the propitiation. He's the perfect justification, the perfect satisfaction of God's divine justice. He is salvation. Mm-hmm. And so what you need to do, Mm-hmm. is throw all your sin mm-hmm. upon Jesus Christ and trust in him Amen. and his finished work. That is exactly what the gospel is. That is what salvation is. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And it's a glorious, glorious truth that, as Second Corinthians 5 describes it, um, that he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And as we close, you know, we started with this, and this is a great place to end. But going again back to the beginning, the, the sin of Adam. And to me, Genesis 3, chapter 3, is the most horrible, awful, discouraging, defeating, and at the same time victorious, wonderful, awesome chapters in the whole Bible. Because mm-hmm. you have the sin of Adam, the fall of Adam, and... But what does he do in that same chapter? Mm-hmm. God clothes them. He he obviously sacrifices some type of animal. We don't mm-hmm. know what it is. Probably a lamb, I've had to guess. And he clothes them in the skin of that animal. Mm-hmm. And it makes them fit to once again come before God. Mm-hmm. And that is the gospel. That's right. The only way that we can be fit for the presence of a holy God is to be clothed mm-hmm. in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. When God sees me, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the only way we may That's be right. made right with God. That's right. So I am not worthy, but thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and power, honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Absolutely. I say this to our despairing friends. Um and I know that there's a lot of despair. I hope you're listening to what we're saying here, and I hope you'll consider it. I've met so many, and, and you know, suicide rates in, in Utah are off the charts. It's a combination of two things. The Darwinism that is promoted and taught in public schools that leaves people with no hope at all, no despair, no meaning in life. But then on top of that, the religious oppression where... Utah, it's it's ironic that Utah is kind of um, centered on this Salt Lake um, that's like this great dead sea of guilt yeah. and despair where it flows in and it can never come out um, at all. And so we have, you know, there was a young lady I met one time and uh, a few years ago, and uh, right away she started talking to me about suicide. And the thing that she kept repeating to me and what clued me in that she was LDS, was she said, I violated the law of chastity, and I did it on the Sabbath. Oh, wow. And she she just, she believed that there was nothing she could do to fix it. Well, in a sense, that's true. But the Lord Jesus Christ has done what is necessary in order to resolve that conflict, to remove the offense between you and God, so that you can come to God. Now, you can't come to God carrying your sin, and you can't say, Jesus, you're going to have to accept me just the way I am. No, You can't do that. All right, there's an old hymn of the faith, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, 
and that thou bidst me come to thee. Yeah. O Lamb of God, I come. That's not the same thing as holding your sin in one hand and saying, I'm going to carry this into heaven or else I'm just going to go to hell. Because, and that's the way a lot of people look at it. They won't give up that sin no matter what. If it drags them to hell, they're not letting go of it. Yeah. All right. But we're saying not a total absolute abandonment of all sinning. Okay. But rather... Um, a giving up the sin in order to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, laying that sin on Jesus Christ and so that he suffers the penalty for it. And we're saying to you, don't despair. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look and live. That's it. That's the gospel. He did it all. He's Amen. sufficient. Well, we have taken up a full hour now. I think we've broken the record for the <laughs> longest episode. But uh, just to throw in our contact information, I am the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Logan, Utah. You can visit our website at gracebaptistlogan.org. My email address is preacherofgrace, that's one word, preacherofgrace at yahoo.com. And Pastor Malinak, what's yours? My name is Dave Malinak. <laughs> I'm the pastor at Berean Baptist Church in Ogden, Utah. Uh, if you live in the area, we would love to have you come and visit sometime. Um, and my email address is P, as in Pastor, Malinak, all one word, P Malinak. Last name spelled M A L L I N A K at gmail.com. Till next week or next time, I guess I should say these days. Yeah. We love you. That's why we're an hour. <laughs> we haven't talked in a while. <laughs> That's what it is. Well, uh, we love y'all and God bless.